0: having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good.
1: There's wonderful stuff in that chapter about how the righteousness of God in Christ is manifested in the life of a believer and in the life of a church full of believers. And that's our portion of Scripture over the coming weeks and months. Let me lead us in prayer, though, for today. Our Father, every Sunday is an emotional day as we gather, whether in person, and thank you for the ability to do that again, or virtually. And be reminded that we are recipients as believers of the manifold mercies of God. And if we are not yet believers, to be exposed to these mercies and invited to receive them. But today is a special day as we are able to do what we have not been able to do for some months to do what Jesus said we are to do, to remember his death by eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of him. And may these words over the next minutes, as we obediently do what you tell us to do to proclaim the Word of God, very pointedly prepare us to gather around the Lord's table to prepare those of us who are Christians to do so in spirit that is appropriate, in fellowship and in harmony with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And may it be that for those who are not yet Christians, that over these minutes as your word is proclaimed, that you would prepare some to gather around the Lord's table, For the first time in their lives with real understanding. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, today we begin a series on Romans chapters 12 to 16, when the floodgates open and all the imperatives and applications of Romans 1 to 11 flood into our lives and hearts. As small groups finish Romans in the next two to three months, preaching chapters 12 to 16, will we trust consolidate the whole experience of Romans as a church? Now I use these words carefully, the whole experience of Romans as a church. Why do I refer to it as such? Over the past couple of weeks as I've prepared to preach on Romans today. I've not been involved in any of the prep on the small group material. I'm not in a small group myself. Um, I'm wondering why not this week. Um, We may do something about that. And I'm not in a small group leaders growth group. And so I've had to work especially hard to get up to speed. But I have spent a lot of time reading and listening to the teaching sessions and I found them to be a huge encouragement for many, many reasons. Let me just give you three of them by way of just a pause at this point in our church's life. Number one, in God's providence, this was the year that we studied Romans, the locked down year. Locked down in our homes on Zoom with Romans. More people able to engage than ever before. And notwithstanding all the pressures of Zoom fatigue, that stability that Romans brought, and I really do believe that it brought us stability and unity supernaturally, enabled us to press on, for example, with all the vision stuff, the building redevelopment project, humanly speaking, challenging at the best of times, very challenging when the church is not able to physically meet. Now, I'm aware that some people are completely zoomed out. Please don't let being zoomed out rob you of the consolidation of Romans over these final two or three months. Another reason that it encourages me is that right across the church, more and more people are being equipped to teach the Bible. That would not have happened had We've not grown the team of full time elders and charmers. Roger and Jay are making a real difference in the life of charmers. That is very evident to me from the material that is written for our study. Moreover, it would not happen without the commitment of those who lead groups for our small group leaders. It would not happen without the huge investment of time of our small group leaders. A church's health can be assessed at many, many different points. When we embarked on Romans 9, 10, and 11, at the end of nine months in lockdown, if the church was united and committed, well, you would know. If it wasn't, you would know. Why are we engaging in training more and more people to teach the Bible? For one reason and one reason alone. The Bible changes lives. And the more people who are equipped to help people change, the more the church will grow in maturity. It is absolutely the right thing to do, to take the Bible out of the pulpit and out of one or two people and put it into the hands of many. Now, we are at the start of that shift, but it is the right trajectory, and I am 100 percent convinced of that from God's Word. The third reason I want to suggest to us that encourages me, a whole church in Romans for a year has great potential to be a life-defining, life-changing time in the life of that church at an individual level and at a corporate level. For together on Sundays and in small groups, we come to terms with the depths of the gospel, its impact on our lives individually and corporately, its significance for humanity. We come to terms with the depths of the mercies of God. I was listening this week to Sinclair Ferguson. He is a Scottish preacher, author, writer. Some of you will know him And he has spent much of his life, as he puts it himself, saturated in Romans. Speaking to a group of seminary students, future ministers, he told them that when the time comes, and I quote, in their ministry, that they find the courage to begin to scale Everest, by that he means Romans, that they do so, one, over enough time to take it in, two, that they make it a whole church experience not just from the pulpit. That is a whole church experience, but take it beyond even that. And thirdly, he said, with the expectation that it will radically change the church. If anyone can say that and encourage us to pray that, it's me, because I've had nothing to do with it. (laughs) All of you have. Can you make that a burden in your praying? That it will radically change us as a church. I think it is in many people's lives. And the next two to three months, as we complete Romans, will be very important. Consolidating, clarifying, applying. People in small groups saying to their leaders, look, I never understood the Bible study you did on that chapter. It wasn't very good. Can we go back to it? I haven't understood the, the bit in chapters 6, 7, and 8. I don't get it. These kind of conversations bedding this wonderful book into our lives. Now, today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take stock and spend a whole Sunday on two verses. All I've got is one verse this morning. You might be thinking that will cut down the length of his sermon. Almost certainly not. One verse is divided into about 16 words. One verse, Romans 12:1. This afternoon and this evening, J, Romans 12, verse 2. Wonderful verses, The beginning of Romans 12 is a key point uh, in the letter. Let's just read the verse uh, again. You'll see it printed in the service sheet. It is a key point in the letter. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that's what it means, by or in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship I'm going to read it again this is a strange Sunday for me after the last year it's beginning to hit me it's great we're on Romans 12 communion all of your studies in this book I appeal to you. I appeal to you, the apostle says, in view of the mercies of God. Give your bodies, that means your life, means your bodies physically, but all your life, all your ambitions, your hopes, your aspirations, all your money, all you possess, all your days on earth. Give me it all as a sacrifice of worship. And remember, he is speaking in the plural to us all as a church. Now, Romans 12, verse 1, and as David read, um, I was getting excited about all these wonderful things that we can preach on. Outdo one another in devotion and love and humility and endeavors. Great stuff. But up until now, we've had chapters 1 to 11. Those of you who are English scholars will know the difference between imperatives and indicatives. Imperatives are do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Paul has held back on virtually giving us any imperatives until chapter 12. One or two tucked into 1 to 11, but 1 to 11 is in the indicative modes. What has been done for us? long before we do anything. Now, what I want to do is just simply unpack that verse uh, for us. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you, therefore... Whenever you see the word, therefore, you've got to ask, what is it, therefore? I appeal to you, therefore. By the mercies of God, therefore is referring to all that He has said, all that we have been learning, all that your small group leaders have spent one, two, or three sessions a week trying to understand. And all that we have been learning concerns the mercies of God. Let me quickly take you through the key steps, the therefore. Now, the way that Paul explains the gospel in Romans is by focusing on the righteousness of God. I'll define what that means in a moment, but that's his big theme in Romans, righteousness. Righteousness. So, here are some key verses from the start of the letter. Let me just read them to you. They're familiar. For I am not ashamed, chapter 1, verse 16 of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. For in it, in the gospel, what the gospel contains, what the gospel is, is the revelation, the showing, the giving of what? Of the righteousness of God. In other words, the gospel gives you. It doesn't just describe for you. It gives you the righteousness of God. It takes what you cannot have. And yet desperately need. And gives it to you. What is the righteousness of God? Here's a simple definition God's holy and perfect character. The righteousness of God is God's holy and perfect character and the righteousness of God God's holy and perfect character is what God requires of anyone who is to have fellowship with him We cannot have fellowship with God unless we are righteous Unless God looks at us and sees holy and perfect character. Now, Paul begins his letter explaining that righteousness is what we lack as humanity. We are born unrighteous. We are in the realm, this is the language that Paul uses, we are in the realm of Adam, fallen humanity. We are unrighteous. We lack righteousness. I was praying before the sermon that the drill would stop. It's about to start. I bet it starts again. It's a little reminder, though, as the buses go by and the drills is on, that life just goes on. Here we are in here talking about the righteousness of God being revealed to humanity, and the world just goes on about its business, utterly indifferent to God, in an arrogant and comfortable and complacent rebellion, given over by God to our own hearts, desires, and the godless life we want. And the state of humanity going about its business with ease and with comfort, astonishingly so off the back of a global pandemic, is an indication not that God is weak, but that God is angry. It is an indication of the wrath of God. I mean, that's very evident in our own context, our own country, the West. The vast, vast majority living indifferently to God, settled and comfortable, at ease in it, not shocked by the agenda to secularize humanity, not shocked by the agenda to dehumanize humanity, which is what is happening when the image of God in humanity is rejected. The vast, vast majority living indifferently to God, even in the face of global pandemic, Humanity's disregard for God, the arrogance, the unrighteousness, the domination, the growing, spreading, seemingly indicative of the triumph of humanity, glory to man in the highest. That is not a sign of the weakness of God. It is a sign of the wrath of God. And in this country, that is, well, it is the case. Are we not under God's judgment Given, I was going to say given up by God, given over by God. Where will it lead? In the end, to eternal judgment. The wrath of God that is already being poured out, poured out in eternal hell. And yet, God in His mercy has opened your eyes and mine to see that. God has brought you in to an understanding. He's brought us to our senses to realize the terrible plight and danger we are in. We understand that all humanity lacks the righteousness of God that God requires to have fellowship with Him and that without that righteousness we face eternal judgment. God in His mercy brings people to their senses. And they realize the terrible plight that we are in. And thank God for Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 that persuade us of that and answer all our questions and objections. And that awareness of what unrighteousness means in me is being brought by God's Spirit under conviction, woken up to the reality of the necessity of an answer that is beyond our abilities. Paul's conclusion in the first part of his letter is in chapter 3. These words will be familiar to us, many of us now. No one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Now, that statement is a statement of condemnation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, therefore, there is condemnation. But it's also a statement of profound tragedy. Just listen to it. Don't study it, just listen to it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The fact that Paul says we fall short of the glory of God is of such significance in his understanding and explanation of the gospel. He might well have written, we have all sinned and fall short of the law of God. That would be true, but it's not the ultimate truth. It's not the maximal truth. The maximal truth is that as humanity, we fall short of the glory of God, and suddenly There's light in the statement of condemnation. For God's purpose for us as humanity was the revelation of His glory. We were created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. To enjoy the glory of God. In other words, we were created for worship. And that's all been lost. Worse than that even, for we have not simply rejected God's beautiful purpose for humanity. We have perverted it. We glory in other things. We worship other things. All have sinned. fall short of the glory of God. It is a statement of condemnation, but it is also a statement of profound tragedy. For we have lost, I think this is right, we have lost what it is to be human. For every advance so-called, for secularism, or every advance so-called for secular humanism is, in fact, a further step to dehumanize humanity, humanity less and less what God intends humanity to be. As Someone has put it, secularism or secular humanism is hell-bent on dehumanizing humanity The only answer is the gospel, for the gospel puts the glory of God back in those He has created in His image. As humanity, we lack the righteousness of God, and it is in coming to terms with all that means that we come to terms with the astonishing mercy of God to provide for us His righteousness in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who, remember, is an ordinary Christian long before he is a theologian, the Apostle Paul, with all his holy affections, his own love of Jesus engaged and raised, proclaims the answer in chapter 3 to humanity's plight. And the answer comes to us initially. It's a little bit like what David read. All these imperatives flood out the floodgates in chapter 12. In chapter 3, all the big, big words of salvation tumble out in a kind of symphony to the glory of God, righteousness, propitiation, redemption, justification, forgiveness of sins with the words, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, who bore your sin, who took God's wrath, who paid the price, who makes you right. That's what it says. Romans 3:21 to 26 it's like a light breaking into the darkness. It's like a diamond on a black cloth. And if your small group leader has not explained to you Romans 3:21 to 26, keep asking them. Keep wrestling with it. Keep praying it through. Understand what propitiation means, reconciliation means, forgiveness means, redemption means. As humanity, we lack the righteousness of God. In His astonishing mercy, it is provided for us in Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the death of Christ alone. Righteousness lacking is my terrible plight. Righteousness provided is God's amazing grace. And from chapter 321 to 521, Paul expands on what it means that there is righteousness provided now in Christ Jesus, the blessings that are ours in Christ, put to death for our sins, Romans 5, raised for our justification to make us righteous. In the risen Christ, we are brought back to glory, and so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The second half of chapter 5, 12 to 21, is a really important section, maybe in some ways the most important section in the first half of the letter. We entitled it something like, A Dead in Adam, Life in Christ. A contrast is drawn between Adam and Christ. I'm going to pick on somebody in church here, and I'm going to look at them, and I'm going to say to them, before you were a Christian, you were in Adam in his realm, which is the unrighteous realm, and you were converted and now you are in Christ in his realm, in the realm of righteousness. You cannot be in Adam and in Christ. It is impossible to have a foot in both camps. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Christians are in Adam no longer separate but reconciled to God, no longer under condemnation but in forgiveness, no longer condemned but forgiven, no longer hell but heaven. And then in chapter 6 through 8, we are getting to 12, wonderful chapters are about, how would we put it, the reign of righteousness, the reign of righteousness. If you are in Christ, Righteousness reigns in your life. Righteousness rules in your life. You have been made fundamentally a new person in Christ, and righteousness reigns. Chapter 6, the reign of sin in your life has been replaced with the reign of righteousness. You have died to sin and are alive to Christ. Your old self in the dominion of sin has been replaced with the new self in the dominion of righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Yes, we still sin, Paul says in Romans 6. We have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin, but the point of this, because we are no longer in Adam, but in Christ, sin's power over us has been destroyed. And that radically changes the way you think and approach sin in your life. Chapter 7, as a Christian, you have not only died to the domination of sin, you have died to the condemnation of the law. And just as there is a now and a not yet dimension to chapter 6, there is a now and a not yet dimension to chapter 7. While we have died to the condemnation of the law, we have not yet been made perfect according to the standards of the law. Yes, I sin. Yes, I fall short of the standards of the law. But Christ is in me. I am no longer in Adam. I am in Christ. Righteousness has my soul, my inner being. Christ is at the bridge of the ship of my life. Righteousness reigns. Rules. It only leads to one end: glory. And it makes us so sensitive in our conscience. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 7:24, "Wretched man that I am." I know that righteousness reigns, but would it reign some more, wretched man that I am. And then in that glorious chapter 8, a Christian is no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's just another way of saying you are now in the realm of righteousness. A Christian is no longer in the flesh and in the spirit. Again, there's a now and a not yet. We still have bodies that sin. We still have bodies that suffer. We still live in a sinful and suffering world. We long for the not yet, and as you long for the not yet, what is Romans 8 full of? What is your life full of? Groaning. The groaning of creation. The groaning of me. The groaning of Christ in me, in His Spirit. Groaning in hope. Righteousness lacking. Righteousness provided. Righteousness reigning. And the end of Romans 8, you would think, that you were at the summit of Mount Everest. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to teach us before he gets to Romans 12 verse 1. You see, you would have thought that when he had convinced us that You've come to understand that righteousness is lacking in your life. It's provided in Christ, and it now reigns in you because you are no longer in Adam but in Christ. Therefore, present your bodies to Christ as living sacrifices, holy. That's exactly what I would write, what you would write. But there's one more thing in chapters 9, 10, and 11 these chapters teach us that god is faithful to his promises but they teach us something personally about our salvation and it's this that god has chosen me to receive his righteousness and over these past three weeks as we've studied chapters 9 10 and 11 All of these questions, they're hard, hard questions. What about this person I love? What about them? And Paul takes on these questions in his own life with regard to his own people, the Jews. But we must never, ever, ever miss the extraordinary, humbling, and sobering truth that God has in His mercy reached down into the world, and the world is like a penal colony. We are all condemned, and God has set His grace on you. He's chosen you. He's chosen me. And put the questions about God's sovereign choice to one side. And let it dawn on your mind and heart that He has, in His mercy, led you to be in here and not out there. He has rescued you from hell. He's opened your heart. Is that extraordinary? I don't really have any words to explain that other than to say, let's just pause. And remember that God in His mercy has set His grace on us. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Aware that righteousness was lacking in the terrible plight that you were in. Understanding that righteousness is provided and that it reigns in you and that God has chosen you hold nothing back from Jesus. For however many days you have living on this earth, you are going to spend all eternity with me, Jesus says. Give your all in a sacrifice of worship Why does he use the language of sacrifice? It's not a sacrifice of atonement for sin. It's a sacrifice of worship. I just think what Paul is doing is relating our sacrifice of our lives and worship for Jesus to Christ's sacrifice for us. He presented his body as a sacrifice of atonement for sin for us. We present our bodies as a sacrifice of worship for him present your bodies. It means your whole bodies, but it includes your body. This bit. Because you love with your body. You speak with your body. You do things with your body. Let Christ reign In the members of your body, if your body is tired and a bit saggy, let Christ reign. I'm thinking of one of our oldest, oldest members, who's nearly a hundred. Her body's a bit saggy. But Christ reigns in His radiance through her wrinkles. Give all you have to Jesus. Give your life to him, your hopes, your ambitions, your plans. I surrender all. This is not a kind of exhortational, emotional sermon. It's the pure, simple logic of the gospel. His appeal to us as a body of believers, the church, all to Jesus we surrender. What will it mean? Well, it will mean what Romans 12 to 16 says. But much more importantly than that, it will mean what we do in terms of listening. Let me finish with this. It's a great thought to finish with as we come to the Lord's table. Paul refers to all of this as worship. Present your bodies our lives, giving our lives, everything we are and have for Jesus, is worship. Why? Worship, because that is what we were created for, the glory of God. Remember, we all fall short of the glory of God. What is it that we are reconstituted to do in Christ? Worship. The glory of God manifest in the church, in the life of a believer, What humanity has rejected, which is the glory of God and a life of worship, the gospel has reconstituted in me. That's what we've been given back. What is your primary calling as a Christian? What is the primary calling of the church? Is it evangelism? is, Is it mission? No, it is worship. Evangelism only exists because there is worship lacking Yes, evangelism is so important, but it's in order to restore the capacity to worship. What a glorious, glorious gospel it all is. Righteousness lacking, provided, reigning, I have been chosen, and now I consecrate my life once again and give Jesus everything. Let's pray. Our loving Lord Jesus Christ. Words can be helpful in explaining things, but it is your spirit that is vital in applying things. So thrill us, we ask, Lord Jesus by the gospel in the gospel that we will be so moved as Paul appeals to us in these coming weeks to give our all to Jesus and for Him. Help us to be motivated rightly by the beautiful logic and power of the gospel. And make this communion time now a sweet, sweet time as we gather around the cross of Jesus Christ. And these things we pray in His name and for His sake. Amen.